0: Our sermon text for this morning comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 15, and we'll read verses 11 through 13. Exodus 15, 11 through 13. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation this point, I'll call the children forward. The verses that we just read are the words of a song. They're part of a song that Moses sang after he had led the people of Israel across the Red Sea, saving them from the army of Egypt. Our sermon today is on what is called the holiness of God. What does holy mean? Well, the word holy has two meanings. The first meaning is that God is set apart. And what does that mean? That means that God is completely other. That he is completely different than anything else. You all know how to group things into categories, right? If your teacher says to you, put all the blue and green crayons in the blue box and all the red and orange crayons into the red box, you know what she means and you know how to do it. If I gave you pictures of plants and animals and said, put all the pictures of the plants on the floor and the pictures of the animals on the table, you could do that. When we say that God is holy, we mean that He cannot be put into a category with other things. There is nothing else like Him. God is not just greater and more powerful and more everything than everyone. He is completely different. God is perfect, and everything about Him is perfect. His love, His holiness, or His strength, His goodness, those are all perfect too. That is God's holiness. The other word, the other meaning of the word holy, is that God is perfectly righteous. That means that there is no sin in Him. He never thinks, He never says, or does anything that is wrong. Since God is holy, that means that we can always trust Him to do right and to help us do right. You know, almost every Sunday we read the Ten Commandments, and I want to explain something to you about God's holiness from the Ten Commandments. Just after Moses led Israel across the Red Sea and sang the song that is part of our sermon text this morning, he led Israel to a mountain called Mount Sinai, where God gave Israel the Ten Commandments. God had just saved his people from being prisoners in Egypt. And he led them through the wilderness. And as he was leading them, he was teaching them about himself and about how they should live as his people, to live in a way that said, thank you to God for saving them. When the people got to Mount Sinai, Moses went up and God gave him the Ten Commandments. Before giving the commandments, God first reminded Israel of how he had saved them. This was because they were his people. They didn't belong to Egypt, they belonged to God. Then because he had rescued them, God told them how they should live to show that they were his people. The commandments that God gave them taught how they should love God and how they were to love each other. These commands were not about making them good enough for God to love them or save them. He had already done that. These commands were a way to show that they were thankful to God for saving them. And these commands were a way to show that they were holy. Remember what holy means. It means set apart. If God is holy, and that means set apart or different from everything, then when we His people are holy, that means that we are set apart, that we are different from everyone else. Because we are set apart or holy, that means that we are different from the world. We love God, and because we love God, we don't worship other things. We don't think of anything more than God. We don't treat other things as if they're more important than God. Because we love God, we don't think bad things about Him or use His name disrespectfully. Because we love God, we obey our parents. We don't cheat, steal, or lie. But the truth is, we do cheat, steal, and lie. And we do think of other things more than God. And we do treat other things as more important than God. But because we are His children, we know that this is wrong. And we truly, really want to love Him. God's commands teach us, and everyone else that sees us, that we belong to God. Because God is holy, He never cheats, steals, or lies, and we know that He is perfectly loving, perfectly truthful, and perfectly faithful. We can always trust Him. And we're going to pray, and then you can return to your seats. O Heavenly Father, thy word is perfect, restoring the soul, making wise the simple, and enlightening the eyes of the blind, the power of God unto salvation for everyone that believes. We, however, are by nature blind and incapable of doing anything good. And thou wilt relieve only those who have a broken and contrite heart and who revere thy word. We entreat thee that thou wouldst illumine our darkened minds with thy Holy Spirit and give us a humble heart, free from all haughtiness and carnal wisdom, in order that we, hearing thy word, may rightly understand it and regulate our lives accordingly. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. We'll reread our text as the kids are making their way back to their seats just to refresh it in our minds. Exodus 15, 11 through 13. Who is like you, O Lord, among the gods? Who is like you, glorious in holiness, fearful in praises, doing wonders? You stretched out your right hand, the earth swallowed them. You in your mercy have led forth the people whom you have redeemed. You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Our sermon this morning is on the holiness of God. We will be standing on holy ground, and it is important that we speak with the utmost caution that we do not, like fools, rush in where angels fear to tread. The holiness of God is a fearsome topic, simultaneously terrifying and yet beautiful. While holiness does denote absolute moral purity... It's also an expression of something else that is so hard to put in the words that men in the Bible don't even try to express it in words. They merely express their reaction to it. For instance, in Genesis 28, when Jacob wakes from his dream of the ladder to heaven, he names the place Bethel, which means the house of God. And the text tells us that he was, quote, afraid and said, how dreadful is this place? When God appears to Moses in the burning bush, Exodus 3, 6 tells us that Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look on God. When Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord in Isaiah 6, he cried out, Woe is me! I am undone! Even the very angels who themselves cry out, Holy, 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 cover their faces in the presence of the Holy God whom they worship. The same thing can be seen in Luke chapter 5 when Peter exclaims, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. The word holy, as we just told the kids, has two primary meanings. The first, the one that immediately springs to mind, is that of moral perfection. The other meaning refers to the quality of being completely other or of being set apart. The two meanings are very closely related. God is holy because He is completely other. There is no other being like Him. He is not the best specimen of His particular type of being. The Lord thy God is one. And the chief expression of His being completely other is His absolute moral perfection. In our text, Moses is praising God for his miraculous deliverance of Israel from the army of Egypt at the Red Sea. And at the very heart of his song of worship is verse 11. And what I want to focus on from our text are these facts. It is God's glory that he is holy. This is what makes him God. His gloriness is expressed in his works And his people worship him because of his holiness. And so the outline of our sermon will run, as you see in the back of the bulletin. Number one, God's holiness is his essential nature. Number two, God's holiness is expressed in his works. And thirdly, God's holiness defines his worship. And so to our first point, God's holiness is his essential nature. Robert Dabney defines God's holiness this way. Holiness, he says, is not to be regarded as a distinct attribute, but as the result of all God's moral perfection together. This definition is shaped by all those passages of Scripture that name God holy. Scripture often calls God names like the Holy One or the Holy One of Israel. In fact, the Bible more often calls God holy than anything else. And of course, Isaiah 57, verse 15 reads, For thus says the high and lofty one who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. Scripture calls God's name holy more than anything else. You will not find the phrase, His mighty name, His wise name, His loving name, but you will find the phrase, His holy name. Sometimes the scripture does say His great name, and His name is great because it is holy. Psalm 99, verse 3 declares, Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. Holiness is God's greatest title of honor. And we're not pitting one of God's attributes against another. When we speak of God's holiness, we are speaking of all of his attributes together. That's why the angels in Isaiah 6 cry, Holy, Holy, Holy. They don't cry, Merciful, 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 or good, good, good. To do so would be to miss the forest for the trees. They are looking at the big picture. God's holiness is the sum of all of His greatness and power. And it is in His holiness that His majesty and worthiness to be worshipped appears. God's holiness transcends our ability even to express it in words. You may notice that, and we saw that kind of already earlier. In all the literature that I've read, the most common adjective that I've ever seen in reference to the holiness of God is the word ineffable, which means impossible to put into words. When Isaiah sees the Lord, his immediate, instinctive response is to say, I am a man of unclean lips. He acknowledges that his lips are not fit even to speak of God's holiness. Before the majesty of God's holiness, David declares, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. You'd never refer to your best white dress shirt as clean if it had a big mustard stain down the front. You wouldn't refer to your living room as clean if there were muddy footprints all across it. And we could never refer to God as holy if his nature had even the least moral blot on it. God loves truth and goodness, and he hates all sin. In Psalm eleven seven, we read, The Lord loves righteousness. And in Psalm 5, 4 we read, He has no pleasure in wickedness. Not only is he holy in himself, and not only does he love his own holiness, he loves holiness and hates sin in his creatures. Holiness is an essential and necessary perfection. God is essentially and necessarily holy. Last week we talked about what the word necessary means. It means that it cannot not be. God cannot not be holy and be God. Because humans are creatures, we are mutable. That means we change. Our character traits are not necessary. They are contingent. For instance, there's a world of difference between saying God is holy and saying James is holy. If James were not holy, he'd still be James. His holiness is not essential to his being or to his james But God's holiness is synonymous with his being. God is his holiness. If he were not holy, he would not be God. To be God is for him the same thing as to be holy. He could no more cease to be holy than he can cease to be God. He is God from eternity and he is holy from eternity. And God alone is essentially holy. No mere creature is or could be essentially holy. We are creatures, we are mutable. That means we change. And change implies improvement or decline. To say that God could change is an unspeakable blasphemy against his character. God is infinitely holy, and he is essentially holy. When we call a Christian holy, we understand that this is immutable holiness. It is a derivative holiness. You can cease to be holy and still be you. But God is not merely holy. He's holiness itself. He contains the holiness of all his creatures put together and infinitely more. As we read earlier in Revelation 15, verse 4, you only are holy. Now since holiness is God's very nature, it is expressed in His works. And this is our second point. God's holiness is expressed in His works. We could easily spend months adoring the holiness of God's works. The Scriptures are full of such declarations. But I want to focus on two aspects how God's holiness is expressed in his moral law and his hatred of sin. God's holiness is expressed in his moral law. How could it be otherwise? How could he give his creatures a binding moral law that was anything but a reflection of his own nature? And scripture very often uses the word holy to describe God's law. Romans 7.12 comes immediately to mind where it reads, the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good. In the space of 13 words, the moral law of God is called holy twice. The holiness of the moral law is seen, I think it's most noticeable, in its spiritual nature and in its perpetuity. Let's look at the spiritual nature of the law. Think of every law that you're aware of in, in this country. Not one of them addresses the heart. Every single one is directed only at external behavior. None of the laws against murder, by all of the subdivisions of it first degree, second degree, homicide, manslaughter, etc. none of those laws care about the heart of man. Whereas Jesus teaches that you can be guilty of murder before the law of God without having spilled a drop of blood. Human laws display their weakness by the fact that they only deal with the external acts. External acts are the least sinful thing about sin. The sinfulness of sin lies chiefly in the fact that men love something that God hates. Committing the act is merely the external manifestation of the internal wickedness of loving what God has forbidden. Human laws also display their weakness by the fact that all they can deal with is externals. All human laws can do is punish me when I actually commit an act. They can prohibit theft, but they cannot command contentment. God's law teaches us that in forbidding theft, he also includes under the name of theft all wicked tricks and devices whereby we design to appropriate to ourselves the goods which belong to our neighbor, whether it be by force or under the appearance of right, as by unjust weights, L's measures, fraudulent merchandise, false coin or usury, or any other way forbidden by God, as also all covetousness all abuse and waste of his gifts. Not only is God's holy law spiritual, it's also perpetual. David links these two together in Psalm 19, verse 9, when he says, The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. God's holy law is merely a reflection of his perfect nature. Scripture says that heaven and earth will pass away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. In Psalm 119, verse 89, we read, Forever, O Lord, your word is settled in heaven. In Psalm and in verse 152, David declares, Concerning your testimonies, I have known of old that you have founded them forever. And then in verse 160, we read, Every one of your righteous judgments endures Forever. The intrinsic goodness of the law of God lies in the fact that it manifests the holiness of the lawgiver. Now a minute ago I said we'd look at how God's holiness is expressed in His law and then in His hatred of sin. So let's look at that glorious truth for a moment. Stephen Charnock writes, God is so holy that He cannot possibly approve of any evil done by another, but doth perfectly abhor it. It it would not else be a glorious holiness. Psalm 5.3, he hath no pleasure in wickedness. He doth not only love that which is just, but he abhors with a perfect hatred all things contrary to the rule of righteousness. Holiness can no more approve of sin than it can commit it. In Romans 1, speaking of sinners, in verse 32, Paul says, Knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but also approve of those who practice them. You'll notice that Scripture judges consent of another man's sin as worse than the crime itself. The words are clear, not only, but also. And that not only, but also tells us that there is greater guilt in taking pleasure in another man's sin than there is in the sin itself. And we would be wise to keep this fact in mind. Now let's examine how Scripture expresses God's hatred of sin. First of all, God's hatred of sin is necessary. And again, we're using that term in the technical sense. In other words, God cannot not hate sin. To not hate sin would be a denial of himself. Our text says that God is glorious in holiness. The nature of God is so holy that He cannot but hate sin. Habakkuk one thirteen reads, You are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. A love of holiness cannot exist without a hatred of everything contrary to it. God loves himself, and therefore he hates everything that is against himself, that is, that is against his holiness. Since he is infinitely holy, he must infinitely hate all evil, and his hatred of sin must be an implacable hatred. He bears an undying hatred for all things that are contrary to his character as expressed in his moral law. If he did not hate it, he would not love himself. Secondly, God hates sin intensely. The language that Scripture uses to declare God's hatred of sin is terrifying, to say the least. Habakkuk 1.12 calls God the Holy One, and then the very next verse tells us, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look on wickedness. In other words, the very sight of sin is detestable to God. In Zechariah 8, verse 17, God says, Let none of you think evil in your heart against your neighbor and do not love a false oath, for all these are things that I hate. God not, does not merely hate the external expression of sin. He likewise hates the desires, the imaginations, the urges, and the temptations that reveal the love of sin in our hearts. The variety of expressions that God uses of his hatred for corrupt worship is equally frightening. In Amos 5, God declares, I hate, I detest, I despise, I will not smell, I will not regard. Take away from me the noise of your songs I will not hear. In Isaiah 1, God says, "Bring no more futile sacrifices; incense is an abomination to me. The new moons, the sabbaths, and the calling of assemblies, I cannot endure iniquity in the sacred meeting. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They are a trouble to me, and I am weary of bearing them." God's warning through his prophets was always, "Do not do this abominable thing which I hate." God's hatred of sin is so intense that it falls squarely on the head of him who commits it. Psalm 5 proclaims, For you are not a God who takes pleasure in wickedness, nor shall evil dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand in your sight. You hate all workers of iniquity. You shall destroy those who speak falsehood. The Lord abhors the bloodthirsty and deceitful man. We're all accustomed to hearing it said that God loves everyone, and this scripture says otherwise. But you'll notice that God does not hate any man simply as a man. Man as man is a creation of God, and God declared His creation to be good. But God hates sin so much that His hatred of it extends to the man who loves sin. God not only hates sin, He hates the sinner. And the sin is the only reason that God hates the man. Thirdly, God hates sin universally. God doesn't change. He is no respecter of persons, as both Peter and James tell us. If God hates sin anywhere, he hates it everywhere. If he hates it in one man, he hates it in all men. We just read Psalm 5.5. You hate all workers of iniquity. Every Lord's Day, we read the Ten Commandments, and in explaining the rationale of the Second Commandment, God says, For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. The metaphor of jealousy, we all understand, it comes from the realm of marriage. A husband is jealous for the honor and sanctity of his marriage and thus will not endure his wife committing adultery. In exactly this way, God will not quietly endure the least infraction of His holy law. Every act of sin is an act of spiritual adultery. It is giving to some created vile thing the dedication and attention that belongs only to God and that only He deserves. Think of the cross. Think of Christ's whole life on earth. Our catechism teaches us that Jesus, all the time that He lived on earth, but especially at the end of His life, sustained in body and soul the wrath of God. And it further teaches us that as our Savior, Jesus had to be human, since God will not punish another creature for man's sins, but that He also had to be God because it required nothing less than the power of His Godhead to sustain His human nature as He bore the burden of God's wrath against sin. Human nature is finite. And God's wrath against sin is infinite. And so the only way for God's infinite wrath against sin to be spent and therefore satisfied, was if the victim were also infinite. And as the God-man, Jesus fulfills this criteria, both criteria. And God hates sin eternally. Now this obviously follows from everything we've already said. God can no more cease to hate sin than he can cease to love holiness. How could he cease to hate anything that is contrary to his own nature without simultaneously hating his own nature? God must first hate himself before he can stop hating sin. Now, of course, we're the complete opposite of this, aren't we? At one moment, we can say that we hate sin, or at least one particular one. But the next moment finds us swallowed in temptation, and we begin to desire that actual sin we claimed moments ago to hate. But he is God and he changes not. He can forever say that he is angry with the wicked every day. Hell burns now and hell will burn eternally as a testimony to God's eternal, perpetual, implacable hatred of sin. When God becomes reconciled to elect sinners, it's not to their sin that he's reconciled. Christ, the God-man himself, was sentenced to death He bore in his body the infinite wrath of God against sin and only Christ's perfect, imputed righteousness makes God reconcilable to sinners like us. Think for a moment about the ways in which we show our contempt of God's holiness. His most glorious feature you know last week we quoted Psalm 50 verse 21 where God rebukes the ungodly by protesting, you thought that I was altogether like you. See how easy it is to dream of a god who isn't holy? We show contempt by God's holiness, of God's holiness when we shift the blame for our sins or when we play with scripture in order to justify our sins. But probably the ugliest way in which we show Contempt for God's holiness is when we feel in our hearts that the law of God is too rigid and strict. And nowhere does this express itself more than in the way that we make fun of or belittle someone who is trying to be holy. How often have you tried to talk someone out of their principles because it inconvenienced you or or made you uncomfortable? How many Christian boyfriends have talked their Christian girlfriends out of their virginity? How many Christian business partners have talked their fellow Christian business partners into lying on tax forms or falsifying employment records because one thought the other was inconveniently conscientious? And now we come to our final observation, and that is that God's holiness defines His worship. The last sentence of our text reads this, You have guided them in your strength to your holy habitation. Since God is holy, his house is holy too. Our text then establishes the fact of God's holiness. That is, it gives us doctrinal content. And then it expresses how this impacts our life. In other words, it applies this doctrine to real life. I am a firm believer that all doctrine is essentially pastoral. That is, practical. What we believe about a thing affects the way we behave. Since I believe Lysol is poisonous, I don't put it in my kids' food. Since I believe exposed wires are a fire hazard, I make sure that there aren't exposed wires in the house, and I don't use frayed, old frayed extension cords either. If I believe that God is holy, there's no conceivable way that this will not affect how I approach Him in worship. The proper reverence for divine worship was conveyed beautifully in the Old Testament by the the various things that God appointed to be used in the temple for worship. Things like the oils and the clothes and the incense. All of these things came with a strict prohibition against anyone making and using them for themselves. And the reason that was given is that they were holy. That is, they were set apart as objects to be used only in the worship of God. Let's take two specific cases. In Exodus 30, from verses 22 to 38, we have the recipes for the anointing oil and the temple incense. And the last words that God says after giving the recipes is this, whoever makes any like it, he shall be cut off from his people. Now, whether or not cut off entails a death sentence is uncertain, but at the very least... It entails being severed from God's covenant, that is, being excommunicated from the church. The holiness of God, in the sense of being completely other, was conveyed in the fact that these things were special. They were for God only. God's holiness, in the sense of His absolute moral purity, was conveyed in the fact that His worship required everything involved in it to be special and set apart only for him. The house of God is holy. The church is the house of God. This is God's house, not ours. He is hosting us as his guests. God is holy, holy, holy. Shouldn't respect for his house dictate that we not turn the house of God into an art gallery or a talent show? Scripture is full of exhortations to worship God in a manner befitting His holiness. Habakkuk 2.20 But the Lord is in His holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before Him. Psalm 99.5 Exalt the Lord our God and worship at His footstool. He is holy. Psalm 93, verse 5 declares, Holiness befits your house, O Lord, forever. The church, that that is God's house, is not merely the building, but primarily the people. It befits, it becomes, it suits God's house that we be holy. As God says, be ye holy, for I am holy. We become like what we worship. That's one of the most repeated axioms in Scripture. If we worship a holy God, we can take comfort in the fact that He will perfect His holiness in us. He who began a good work in you will complete it. God's holiness and His love of holiness spill over into His love for His children so that He desires nothing more than to make them conform to the image of His Son. And he is more ready to sanctify us than we are ready to be sanctified. God's very purpose in our predestination to salvation, according to Romans 8.29, is that we be conformed to the image of his Son. The church cannot be unholy because it is the bride of Christ. As a husband and wife are declared by God to be one flesh, Christ cannot be one flesh with an adulteress. He will purify his church until she has no spot or wrinkle.